0: Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 2 through 4 this morning. And while you're getting there, turning there, tapping there, whatever you're doing there, um, I just got to say this service was not planned with me in mind because there's just too many, um, I don't know, Megan, what should I call it, tear-jerking things that are happening in this room right now for me uh, because I was 24 when I moved up here and Sarah was singing the very first Sunday I ever showed up and just to hear her lead again today was awesome. I'm looking at Jamie here on the front row, she's walking up and laying hands on people, and I'm looking at Randy and Katie walking over on the other side holding their little baby, and it's just too much for me. I'm looking at Amelia standing up here with her fiancé, and this weekend I got to hang out with Cade Redmond, and you know, while I was here years ago, I had that privilege of being that person who tries to herd the cats and... Uh, pour into the students, and um, there's just a blessing, man, with um, perseverance and consistency and relationship and community, and um, it's like as time gets going or time's moving, shoot, don't look at me. I don't know why I looked at Megan. Um, time, Time gets going or time keeps moving. It keeps moving quicker and quicker. Do you know that we took Charlie to uh, you know, Charlie's in pre-K, our four-year-old, and um, many of you know while we were here, we were praying about having a family, and you know, we have we have three in heaven, we have two on earth, and so we have Seth, who's seven, and we have Charlie, who's four, and um, when we walked into Charlie's pre-K orientation a couple months ago, I look up and I see a face, and I know that face, and I had heard the name Miss Jeffers, Miss Jeffers, Miss Jeffers a bunch of times, but when I walked in, what I realized was my four-year-old daughter's pre-K teacher, was a little girl like a Jamie, a Katie, and Amelia that was in my youth group 15 years ago. And uh, I'm losing hair and it's turning gray. And uh, so that's why I grow my beard out longer now because all my hair's running on the top. (laughs) Megan finally let me shave it so I could just deal with that. But I feel more and more uh, connection to what Paul said Because Paul went out on his journey, his assignment, his calling to spread the good news of the kingdom of God. And he would go places and he would preach and he would raise up leaders and he would pour into spiritual sons and daughters and he would establish leaders in those churches and he would make sure those churches were healthy and then he would write letters and send them to those churches. And Guys, we have some of those letters. We don't have all of them. We have the ones that have been preserved. That's it. And there's so much more that was probably written and said and talked about. And and so we piece together our New Testament, these these very loving, sometimes very challenging, very difficult things that Paul and the other New Testament writers wrote. But Paul has this thing that he does that's unique uh, with the other writers. He always structures his letters in the classic Greek way of an introduction, a, a greeting, a insight into what the issues were, solutions for those issues, and then final instructions and a farewell. Those was pretty standard. And so he often opens his letters by saying hello to people that he loved and talking to them. And then he would end those letters by challenging them or saying something that they needed to hear, and he would put it in the letter. And I, and I find that so interesting because those letters were circulated They were, of course, delivered first to that church, which meant that the letter would not have been read in private by those people, but instead, like we're doing today, the letter would have been read by one person to the entire assembly. So what a cool thing for you to be sitting there in a first century church and you get a letter from Paul, the one who planted and started that movement in your town, and he mentions you by name and gives you a specific instruction. But there's this thing he says... Many times that I'm just starting to connect better with, he writes on numerous occasions this phrase, I long to see you. I long to see you. And uh, that's one of the things about being you know, called in ministry is that God is always sending. He doesn't just save us. He sends us. And He doesn't ask us if it's convenient to be sent. It wasn't convenient when He sent Megan and I up here. It wasn't convenient when He sent us away from here. But He connects us. We're part of a body. We're part of the kingdom of God. And we have this wonderful opportunity in each other's lives to participate in what God is doing in each other's lives. We get to be a part of and witness to the work that God is doing in each other's lives. We get to see each other grow, and we get to be a part of that growth. We get to witness that and participate in that, contribute to that in some way. Some of the best questions I was ever asked by a middle schooler in a Bible study were asked by Cade Redmond and Amelia Rothwell. I learned to love the middle school cats, you know, herding that crew in that little Sunday school room because of just the questions that they asked, you know, and it's that joy that you get to see each other grow. We all help each other know God and we all help each other know ourselves And I believe you can't know yourself unless you know God. I believe that He loves you, He made you in His image, and He has a purpose for you. And that purpose can't be fully discovered or understood until you know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, and you've received the gift of this new covenant, which is the Holy Spirit, who teaches you about who Jesus is, who helps you to turn from a life that you built for yourself, a way of thinking that you shaped for yourself, and accept or receive this life that he's gifted to you, or this way of thinking that he's gifted to you. You don't really know who you are until you know him, and we as a group of people, a body, a family of faith, help each other know him and truly know ourselves. We get to be a part of that. At the very core of it all, I think what we're all doing is we're helping each other know the truth. We're helping each other know the truth about God, about ourselves, and about each other. And I think the thing that we all help each other with, the thing that we, in a way, wage war, we wage a war for ourselves and for each other, is we wage a war against lies. We wage a war against things that feel true but are not true. From the very beginning, there has been this cosmic battle. God had communion with our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And from that story, what we learn is that there will always be a snake in the garden. There will always be a whisperer in your life telling you the things that you want to hear and disrupting your relationship with God and other people. He tells us lies that feel true. He perverts or distorts or confuses how we define good and evil. And Isaiah said it. He said there will be a day, and there has always been days where people call good what God calls good evil and what God calls evil good. And Of course, Adam and Eve, by taking of the fruit, what does this story show us is that they wanted the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to determine good and evil for themselves. And I asked a question this week at the men's thing. I want to ask it to you too. Who in this room has suffered because someone decided good and evil for themselves? Who in here in this room has suffered as the result of someone in your life deciding good and evil for themselves? Someone deciding that they were their own highest authority. Someone deciding that, you know what? I'm not concerned about the consequences. At the end of the day, when we're trying to figure out who God is, we're trying to discover what a life looks like that God approves of. What we're really trying to determine is who is God and what does he expect of me? However you answer those two questions has a lot to do with your quality of life, but it definitely has a lot to do with just the the quality of your relationship with God. There is a, a, a huge concern that many of us, I think, avoid. We find things to distract us from this concern. We find busyness that distracts us from this concern connected to our faith. And that concern is is this, is that if people don't know the truth about God, then they are perishing. If they don't know the truth about God, then they are perishing. Not only are they experiencing hell on earth through their decision-making and lifestyle now, but they will experience that for eternity because this cosmic battle that has happened from the very beginning is founded on this big idea that you and I can be our own God, that we can determine good and evil for ourselves, and we are the master of our own lives. There is no God that will hold us accountable for our decisions and lifestyle, and so we can determine what our life is and what it's about and and what the purpose of it is. And this type of thinking connects us very strongly to this world that we live in. The way you could say it is, is that all these lies that are pushed or published or taught, they anchor our souls to this world. They anchor our souls to this world. They cause us to put a higher value on things of creation than creator. We exchange the worship of Creator God for created things, and we anchor our souls to this earth. And the hard reality, the word perishing that Jesus uses in John 3, simply means that this world will pass away. And on that great and terrible day, God will perfectly judge this world. And for those who have accepted what Christ did in their place on the cross, like the children of Israel going through the Red Sea, they will pass through the judgment of God. Not by anything they have done, but by what Christ has done on their behalf. But for those who have allowed the concerns and cares of this world to become so big in their hearts and so valuable in their eyes, whose souls are anchored to this earth, they will go down with the ship. they will go down with the ship. This concern that we all have is that people we love have believed lies about God, about themselves, and about others. And as believers, we are not only saved, but we are sent. And I'm, I'm going through this introduction like I am today because I want you to to realize something in this message. For everybody that's here today, anybody that watches this later online, what I want you to realize is that there are people who have not believed yet because you haven't been intentional and participated in their salvation. There are people... I know this is kind of like Mount Everest, think about God type stuff. You might need a little spiritual oxygen tank to walk up this mountain today. But I believe wholeheartedly that we are not just, you know, saved and predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, but we are also, it says, he knew us. He predestined us, He chose us, He equipped us, He justified, sanctified, will glorify us. And it says that He has good works planned for us. Not only to be conformed into the image of His Son, but we were predestined for good works. Which would mean what? It would mean that you are a part of God's plan for someone else to know Him. There is a plan for someone else to believe, and you are a part of that plan. And there are people that haven't believed yet simply because you have not shared. Now, if people come in here, there's so many things that could be considered evangelism just by being in this room. I'm a teacher, and I adapt wherever I am. And for the last few years, I've been a part of a community of faith that really is not familiar with anything that has happened in this room. The apostolic gift, the prophetic gift that we all witnessed this morning that brought so much joy and refreshment, where a person just stands on a stage and says something so simple as, Today is a day for rivers of joy. There's nothing special. About that. There's nothing special about Mark Evans saying that or anything special about David Thaxton teaching this morning. What's special is that God breathes on it. And you feel it. You sense it. You discern it. It's not something you really can explain or even put in words for somebody else just to accept it, but there's something about it. And so for me, being a part of a community, being a part of a a system where you're trying to figure out good and evil and, and together as people, you're trying to know God and trying to experience Him, Being a part of a community of faith consistently exposes you to all the things that you can experience with God. The reality is is that we all will believe things about God that are not true simply because we have a a value on our own opinion that's too high. And what we will say to ourselves is, God is who I think He is. And God can do what He's done for me, and God cannot do what he's He's not done for me. But when I'm a part of a community when I am in community with people just as imperfect as I am, I am exposed to not only their story, but their experiences and their gifts. And whatever presumptions I may have had coming through the door are challenged, and I know God better because I know His people as well. So for the people who always ask, can I be a Christian and not go to church? I, I, you know, my thought is yeah, but not a good one. Because what you believe about God will always be limited by the people you surround yourself with. And what you believe about God will be maximized by the people you surround yourself with. I have deep concern in my heart for my children. The lies that are pushed and published and written and taught and celebrated in this life and in this world that they're growing up in, I have great concern that my children will believe the lies that feel true. Just as I have a deep concern for people that I love, my friends, my family, my neighbors, who don't know God through Christ because I know what Jesus said was true and they are perishing. And if I am a part of God's plan to help them believe, not cause them to believe, not convince them, but be a participant and God's work of persuading them to believe, I have to say, okay, God, what am I supposed to be doing? So I want to read Colossians to you. I want you to hear what Paul says at the end of his letter, what's known as his final instructions. He's writing to a group of people who he may or may not have ever seen in person at this point. What's amazing when you read the introduction to this letter is Paul mentions a man named Epaphras, just a Greek name. This man Epaphras, best we understand, was present in Ephesus when Paul started the church at Ephesus and gave his life to Christ and went back home and was a key leader in starting the church at Colossians. But Timothy spent time there. Paul spent time there. Paul grew to love these people, especially just because of their faith and their testimony. But there's something happening in this church when Paul writes this letter that is disturbing to Paul. It's disturbing in all of our lives today in in ways that are relevant for us. There were all kinds of disruptions and things that were happening that were causing confusion about what is true and about what is lies, what is good and what is evil There was a movement of Gnosticism that had an influence. There was a movement of this shaman, spiritual guru-type figure who was trying to paint himself off as some type of religious leader that the people should follow and that they should put their faith in him. And then there were the traditional idols or pagan gods that the people had grown up worshiping. There were all these things happening. And so the people who had become Christians had a clear understanding that we're not just saved, we're sent. When Jesus called His first disciples, He said to them, Follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. Which means the day He invited them to follow was also the day He invited them to lead. Follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow, grow, go. Isn't that amazing? Believers Church, right? Follow, grow, go. Follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. So that means all of us, on the day we become disciples, are meant to make disciples. And you really don't know what it means to be a disciple until you're making some, until you're participating in that work. So Paul's concerned, and he's concerned about the lies that are being told, the lies that are being celebrated. And he knows that just by them coming together as an assembly, there are going to be things that are evangelistic in nature prophetic gifts, communion, worship. Those are inspiring things that if there's an unbeliever or an outsider among you in your assembly, they're going to be moved by that. And they may turn to God from idols and know God through Christ. But there are many who will never even come in the door. Many who will never attend that assembly. So what must we be doing? What must we be doing in the lives of our family, friends, and neighbors, to combat, to war in this cosmic battle for the truth about good and evil. Listen to what Paul says in the final instruction. He says in verse 2, "...continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may... Here it is, verse 4. That I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Let me read it again. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open for us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Which is how I ought to speak. What is Paul saying here? He's saying people can't follow confusion. He's saying... People can't connect to things that are confusing. And he's he's given us some insight into what's happening here. He's saying there's a cosmic battle going on of how people define good from evil, of how they define right from wrong, of how they live their lives and how they make their decisions. And what we're telling them is that they are God's image when they are His children through belief. That they can become children of God through belief and they can discover what is truly good and what is truly evil. They can lay down the life they've made for themselves and built for themselves, and they can accept the life that Christ gifts to them. We're offering them a new way of thinking and feeling and wanting. We're giving them this new life. We're offering this to them, but we ourselves are not offering it. We are just messengers who have also received it. We are offering to others what we ourselves have received. We are ambassadors of this kingdom and new creation that we've been made to be a part of by the works of Christ on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, not by anything that we have done. And what He is addressing is this tendency, this tendency that we all have that we make it confusing for people because of our inconsistency, because of our own confusion that spills out into the lives of other people. People don't take the gospel seriously because we don't take ourselves seriously. We don't take the mission seriously. We don't take the assignment seriously. We don't consider what it means when other people observe our lifestyle, our decision-making, and the impact that that has on On other people. Paul is saying that, man, we must be praying with thanksgiving steadfastly that a door would be opened for us to share, but also pray that I will be clear when the door opens. This is powerful. So, what is this saying? This is saying that in order for us to be effective in sharing the gospel and good news with people, we have to just make a big decision. Okay, big decision right here. Let me tell you what it is. We have to be willing to endure the no's for the sake of the yes's. We are way too concerned about the no's and not concerned enough about the yes's. When Paul himself preached at Mars Hill, he got this response. A group of people heard him preach about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Paul's position, he didn't quote a single scripture. He pointed out the idols in their life. He talked about the idols that they worshipped. He saw a idol with a no name on it, and he said, let me tell you about this God. This is the one true God who has created all things. We are his offspring, and he has appointed unto man a judge of the living and the dead, and has confirmed him to be the judge of the living and the dead by his resurrection from the dead. And the thinkers of the day, the thinkers that were present, said, oh, who is this foreigner with all of his new ways and his new religion? Some believed, some said he's crazy, and others said we'd like to hear more. This will always be the response that we get. Yes, no, and not yet. And we have to be more concerned about those who are ready to say yes than we are about those who are still saying no. We're too concerned about the people who will reject us and not concerned enough about the people who will receive us. Our fear of the people who will reject us causes us to be confused because you know what we try to do when we get afraid we try to help the Word. We try to help it. We take away from it the parts that we think are troublesome and we add to it the things we think it needs. I want to read another passage to you out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to this right here. They're going to throw it on the screen for you. Second Corinthians chapter 4 says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Why would you lose heart? because people aren't receiving the gospel. You're losing heart because your family and friends and neighbors haven't believed yet. You're losing heart because no matter how often you preach, no matter how often you try, no matter how much effort you make, people are not turning to Christ the way you want them to. But he says, We do not lose heart, verse 2, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Verse 5, For, we, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They know God through Christ. Verse 7. Did I give you only to six? Yeah. Well, here's the reason why. Because I want you to focus on this. I'm remembering it as I'm looking at it right now, or watching me think out loud. I want you to see what this is saying. I want you to focus on this for just a second. He's acknowledging the cosmic battle. And what he's saying is that the God of this world, just as he did in the garden, have convinced people to believe lies that feel true. And if we will preach the unadulterated truth, the light will pierce that darkness. But if we try to be cunning, if we tamper, if we're underhanded, if we try to add to it or take away from it, we are confusing. The gospel is not clear, and no wonder they don't believe. It may not even be something that you can explain or put into words as to why they've rejected it, but if we think of ourselves more highly than we should or smarter than we should and we think that God's Word needs our assistance, we will be ineffective. He is, in a sense, calling out this tactic because people have obviously used it. He's saying, I know many of you feel like you've lost heart and that you're losing heart, but beware that you're trying to be more effective by tampering with God's Word, but in fact you've become less effective. It's the reason why when he left Mars Hill and went on to Corinthians, you know what he said in his opening letter to to Corinth? He said, I have decided to preach Christ and Him crucified. There was this thing that Paul realized that, hey, It is not I who saves them and it is not I who stops them from being saved. It is I who is meant to carry the message that saved me without my wittiness, without my cunningness, without my man-made wisdom. I'm going to teach the Word of God unadulterated, untampered, without cunning and that alone will pierce through the darkness of Satan's lies, the God of this world, and they will turn to the truth. If by some in, in some way we have believed that it's my ability to communicate the gospel that causes people to be saved, we will never see the type of responses that we could see if we simply were intentional and shared and loved and prayed for people the way we are called to. We are meant to go and knock on the doors, seeing if they are open. And isn't it amazing that he says, pray that a door would be opened. In Acts 14, he celebrates past tense. He says, we praise God that a door was opened. Later in Corinthians, he writes and he says, A great door of effectiveness has been opened to me, but I must leave because Titus is not here and I must go find him. And then another time, he celebrated that an effective door had opened and he also celebrated that many adversaries had risen up against him. By listening to Paul's words, by paying closer attention to the things that he writes, what we realize is, is that we are meant to make ourselves available to God. He needs our availability, not our ability. He has made us to be a part of this plan of saving other people through our prayers, through our preaching, and through our practice. Through our practice of following Jesus in this lifestyle. He's never asked you to be perfect. He's only asked you to be focused on moving forward in your faith, making progress. Progress, not perfection. Progress is honest about its weaknesses. Somebody who's talking about their progress has to tell you where they were in order to tell you where they are. Somebody who pretends to be perfect only tells you about how good they are today. But if you talk about your progress, you like to hold up the side-by-side. Here's where I was. Here's where I am. And here's where I am going. Isn't this why Paul would have written to Titus when he was talking about his people who were becoming a little conceited, a little arrogant? You know what he said to them? He said, I want you to remind those folks, Titus, remind them that it is by no work of their own that they have been saved, but because of Christ Jesus being rich in mercy, loved them and regenerated them from the inside out. And just remind them too, Titus, that they were once led astray themselves. And if they will remind themselves that they too were once led astray, they will be more motivated to talk to their family, friends, and neighbors about the things that God has done in their life. Great news, everybody. Not all of us are called to teach, but all of us are called to testify. And testifying requires humility because you have to begin the story with this is who I was. What did Paul do when he got his audience with Agrippa? What did Paul do when he got his audience with the big timers? I was once a man of the law, a Benjamite of Benjamites. I was taught at the feet of Gamaliel. I mean, he went to where I was, what happened, where he is, and where he's going. This story that every single one of us have is hard to fight against. We fumble and stumble over what we think about this doctrine or that thing or this idea and we're so intimidated or or just too concerned about being rejected and we think we can never tell anybody about God because we're not equipped to to preach His Word. We are all equipped on the day we are saved to talk about where we've been, where we are today, and why we've made the decision to follow Him that we have. The, The story that we all have of following Jesus begins the day that we follow Him, the day day that we say yes to Him, and we then at that very moment are equipped to make disciples by sharing that story. And when we share that story with humility, talking about our progress, what happens is people believe the truth. And the truth is, if He can love them, He can love me. If He can use them, He can use me. So how are we all going to reach our family, friends, and neighbors? How are we going to do what Paul tells us to do here in Colossians 2? Well, we're going to pray for the people that we know are perishing. We're going to pray for the people we know are perishing. We're going to call them out by name, the people we know and love that haven't believed yet. And we're going to ask God to give us an open door of opportunity to be effective in their life, to participate in God's plan to save them. And we're going to ask God to help us to be clear when that opportunity comes. You know, when Paul was helping Titus and Timothy set up those churches and he was giving them criteria for leadership, he was telling them, these are the things you should look for in a person's life in order that they would be qualified to be a leader in the church. He didn't talk about the things you would think. He didn't talk about, you know, big charisma or big personalities or a background in business or something like that. No, he talked about character traits, evidence that they were not only knowledgeable in the gospel, but that they were living the gospel. And he makes this one statement at the very end. You know what he says? He said, they should have a clear conscience about the mystery of Christ, meaning that they should know how to share the gospel. And I know this is an odd way to end, but I want to ask you that today because I think that's step one. Step one, do you have a clear conscience about the mystery of Christ that Paul is talking about in Colossians 4? Do you know what the gospel message is? Are you clear and confident On what the good news actually is and if you're not what a responsibility every one of us have to develop that muscle in our hearts and minds to work that muscle and can I tell you the best way to work that muscle try to tell somebody about it not sit in your little silo in your little bubble trying to perfect your pitch that you're gonna make to somebody but just when the opportunity comes to begin telling somebody about what Jesus has done in your life. And can I challenge you even further, 50 feet here today, follow, grow, go. Lead others to follow, grow, go. Lead others to follow, grow, go. Lead others to follow, grow, go. Disciples making disciples. If you get so bold this week to actually take the double dog, triple dog dare of getting in your prayer closet and thinking about people, picturing their face, and pray this dangerous prayer, Lord, give me an opportunity this week. Wherever I go, not just with my family, friends, and neighbors, but with strangers, give me an opportunity, Lord. I'm ready because they are perishing. And I'm called to be a participant in this ministry of this mystery of Christ revealed in humanity. How could humanity know who God was unless He helped us know Him? And what Paul says is so beautiful. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the divine nature of God made plain. He is the mystery of God revealed. We know God through Christ. We know ourselves through Christ. And if I get so bold as to say, Lord Jesus, give me an opportunity this week to tell somebody Help me be clear. Help me not to be confusing. Give me an open door. Man, I'm willing to bet the bank that a door will open so wide in front of you. And it will be so undeniable. Your heart will start pumping. Your mouth will get dry. And you'll start piling all that unnecessary pressure on yourself. The same thing they were doing here. And you'll start thinking of ways that you can tamper and be cunning and be witty and be funny. And what Paul says is abandon that. And just put the pressure on Christ, who willingly took all that pressure on himself. And just tell them what he did. And tell them what he's done in your life. And you know what's so crazy? They'll believe. I mean, it's miraculous. They'll believe. Do you know that He said, when you go out and do this, you're not alone. Because when you believe, you receive the gift of this new covenant, which is His Holy Spirit. And you know what He said? He said, boys, everything written in Scripture is about me, and it must be fulfilled. I want you to wait in Jerusalem, Don't you go out of that room until you receive this promise and this gift and this power because I'm going to clothe you in power to be witnesses to the ends of the age. And it says that as they went out preaching the forgiveness of sin, the Lord worked with them. The Lord worked with them. Lord, breathe on my words. Lord, work with me today. Lord, as I go into work, as I go to the ball game, as I go to this family reunion, as I have this phone call, as I have this meeting, as I send this text, breathe on my words, Lord, work with me. I want to see them know who you are. They will believe. What did he write to the Romans in chapter 10? Throw that up. Let's, Let's read that together. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved But how will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That's you. That's me. There are people who have not believed yet. There are people who still believe lies that feel true simply because they haven't heard or seen the truth from you. Come on, let's pray. Father... We need the help of the Holy Spirit this morning. The band's going to come back up. We're going to take communion. And this is, a, this is a solemn moment here. This is a moment of reverence. This is a moment of examination and evaluation because what do we do in communion? Man, it's, we're, we're raising a toast. Jesus said, I will, I will not eat of this or drink of this until we are together again in my kingdom. So we're here today. We're remembering His body, His blood, His sacrifice. And He says to us, do this in remembrance of me when you're gathered in my name. And we're saying it today. We're saying cheers to the King who is to come. Cheers to the King who is to come. We're worshiping now in response to what God has said to us. And that's what we've got to do in this moment. We've got to worship in response to what God has said to us. So that's my challenge for all of us today. My challenge is that we pray and respond to the things that we've heard God speak to us in worship and in the Word and in the prophetic things that we've witnessed. And then this communion, we would examine ourselves and remind ourselves that the way, as Colossians says, the way that Christ disarmed the principalities and powers of this age, that blind people to the truth is through the cross. Because God came and lived among us. He died for us in our place. He became the curse so we could receive the blessing of a relationship with God that He would be our Father and our friend. So let's examine ourselves today as we worship and as we take communion. Pastor Mark's coming now. He's going to give us more instruction. But let's respond. Let's think about what we've heard, and let's have that conversation with God before we leave this place.